Good morning, everybody. Uh, ooh, that sounded big. That was official. I like that. Um, amen. Yeah, I, don't, I never needed help being loud, but I'll take whatever I can get outside. Uh, this morning, there we go. Hey, yeah, if we can reach people across the street, I would love that. I keep hoping we see some of these neighbors show up. Um, this morning, we're going to continue our series looking at the life of Christ. We're going to pick back up where we left off two weeks ago. So we'll be looking at the temptation of Jesus specifically. Uh, it does appear in three of the four Gospels. Mark, with his kind of trademark brevity, gives it three verses. Matthew and Luke provide the most detail. And we'll be looking at the account in Luke this morning. Um, so if you will, please read with me or listen along. Uh, this is Luke 4, starting in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Please join me in prayer. God, we thank you first and foremost for being you. We thank you for being the artist that created the colors around us and the musician that created the sounds around us. We thank you for being the creator. We thank you for being the sustainer. We thank you that you have given us the capacity to engage with your word and the desire to know you better, God. And I pray that that would be the burden on all our hearts to know you better. And so in this time, Lord, I pray that whatever distractions, whatever burdens are weighing on our minds, whatever might take our attention anywhere else but you, that you would remove that, that you would allow this time to be a continuation of worship as we seek to know you better and to understand this relationship that you have made available to us, God. Let these be your words. Let this be a time that is led by your spirit, and let this be an offering that is pleasing to you. We love you and we praise you, and it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Okay. So what's the first thing we see in this story, right? I've said we're studying Jesus' life because we need to know and understand the person of Jesus. And the very first thing that jumps out about this moment in time has honestly popped up every single sermon that we've looked at the life of Christ. And that in and of itself should tell you something. But the very first thing we see in this story is Jesus was submitted. Jesus was submitted to the Father's will. Jesus was submitted to the guiding of the Holy Spirit, right? We've talked about, did you not know I must be in my Father's house? Jesus had to go through Samaria. Mark, I love how Mark phrases it with his bluntness and his directness. Mark 1.12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Matthew and Luke both refer to it as the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. We constantly and consistently see 
a spirit of submission in the person of Christ to the will of the Father and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's beautiful. And we're going to look at that word submit coming up in just a little bit. But that's the first thing that sticks out like so many of the stories of Christ. And then second, that leads us to why. Why did he have to go out into the wilderness? Why was it so important that he was tempted? And this again ties back to what we've seen every week as we look at Christ. Right? We looked in week one at his birth, Emmanuel, God with us. We looked at the interpersonal relationship that God desires and intends. The association in week two as we looked at his baptism. The association with the very people he came to save. This is meant to be personal. This is not meant to be some distant deity who you don't know on an intimate level. This is a Savior who desires to be connected to you and to identify with you so that we can identify with Him. And we see this in His temptation. Listen to these verses in Hebrews. This is Hebrews 2.18. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And pay attention to that word sympathize. There's a very real difference between sympathy and empathy. Empathy is my heart goes out to you, but I can't relate to you. Our high priest sympathizes with us. A high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This, if you have a relationship with Jesus, this is your personal Savior who relates to you better than anyone else can in a way that no one else can. And don't gloss over that. Because think about what this means. Think about the implications of this. Right? When you don't know how to do something, what do you do? You seek the advice and input of someone who does. Addie and I have done this... I probably need to stop making fun of social media at this point because one of the ways we've used social media is, hey, we don't know how to do this. Does anyone in our circle of friends and connections do? And a lot of times we've received advice and input and, hey, yeah, I experienced that a couple years ago or you know, a couple months ago. And we've been able to address problems by looking for people who know what they're talking about more than we do. And I know plenty of us do the same thing, right? Hey, plumbing question. My car broke. Anybody familiar with this? I'm doing construction. Really, we use our resources available. This is what we have in Jesus. Don't gloss over that. Don't say, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus has been tempted, but, you know, I'm tempted now. Right, that's why Jesus was tempted, so that he can help us when we are being tempted. Because we say things like, well, look, you just, you don't understand. You don't understand what I'm going through. You don't know what it's like to be me. You don't have the same hurt I do. You don't have the same pain I do. You don't know what it's like to be me. I may not. There might not be a person on this planet in flesh and blood who can relate to you in exactly the same manner as what you're experiencing. In fact, odds are probably good that there isn't. But Jesus can. Jesus can perfectly. I mean, it says he has been tempted in every way, in every respect as we are. So whatever you're facing, Jesus needs to be that Facebook post or that text of, hey, I'm going, you know, I text the guys, hey, a couple years ago, my grill broke. I've tried this, this, and this. It's not working. What do I do? Right? Jesus needs to be that text for us. Jesus needs to be that text of, I'm struggling with this. I'm fighting this. I'm wrestling with this. I'm weighed down by this. I'm trying it on my own, and it's not working. Jesus, help. What do I do? 
Surrender it to Him. Take it to Him. He has been tempted in every respect as we are. That's why it's so important and so beautiful that this happened. And then how? If that's the why, how was Jesus tempted? And this is, Esther and I had a great conversation this week about we wish, right, we were talking about preparing Bible studies or classes or sermons. We were like, we wish we could somehow bring everybody into the entire process. Because there, there's so much beauty that is discovered in preparing for something and studying something. And so there are going to be a couple times this morning where I talk about, and I'm just going to get really, I'm going to get a big smile if I'm not squinting too much, right? But I, I just, have you guys ever, have you ever smiled so big that you can't help but laugh? Right? Like you're so excited about something and you just have so much joy that it, it can't be physically contained within a smile and it bubbles up into a laughter of just pure joy. That happened a couple times this week as I was preparing for this message. And that sounds kind of weird. Sam, you're studying temptation. Like what were you so joyful about? I was just so, uh, so blown away, so grateful to see how interwoven Scripture is, to just get the privilege of spending time in the one coherent testimony to who God is. And so we're going to look at a couple of these, just, these connections between different passages that just, man, they make me laugh because a smile is not enough to express how happy I am to spend time in God's Word. And the first thing that pops up, how was Jesus tempted? Remember two weeks ago as we studied his baptism and we read a verse out of 1 John 2, right? And we must abide as he abides, we must walk as he walked. Or if we claim to abide in him, we must walk as he walked. And so that was a chapter that I, as I had been preparing for that sermon, that chapter meant a lot. I really appreciated it. I enjoyed the challenges in it. And I threw it out to all of us, hey, read 1 John 2 every day this week. And I promise you, that was not my own brilliance or cleverness, right? Like, I wasn't like, oh, I'll have him read First John 2 and it'll tie in in the success. So that was just, this was a great chapter for this week. I think we should all read it this week. And so I did, right? I've told you, I'm not going to ask you to do stuff I won't do. So I'm reading First John 2 every week. And then the one day, First John 2, 15 through 17, just jumped off the pages at me. And I was like, wow, that's a great challenge. First John 2, 15 through 17, that's a great challenge. And I threw a thought up on Facebook. Where I was like, wow, that's it's a really good, this, this is just a great chapter. And then I moved on, right? And I moved on to begin preparing for this week's message on the temptation of Christ. And I opened my commentary. I've got everything ready to study, to study, okay, how is Jesus tempted? What did his temptation look like? And the first passage that it tells me to go read for context is 1 John 2, 15 through 17. And I was like, oh, that's awesome, right? That is, that's so exciting to me to see the Scripture connect to one another. And so I want to read 1 John 2, 15 through 17 this morning. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire... Listen to these three phrases. These are the three phrases we're going to be studying. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So you have the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, I'm sorry, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are the three manners in which Christ was tempted. These are the three manners in which we are still being tempted today in every form. And we're going to look at that and look at what these mean. So first, you have kind of the... 
I guess the most basic. It's got the shortest to discuss because it's the most readily obvious. Desires of the flesh, right? We understand the physical urges, and it's not, we tend to go in one direction of physical gratification. This can be any fleshly desire, which we'll look at when we talk about our personal relationship with this. But you have the desires of the flesh, Luke 4, 2 through 3. Luke 4, 2 is one of what might be the biggest understatements of all time, right? He had not eaten or drank for 40 days, and when those days ended, he was hungry. Like, yeah, that, I can relate to that. That makes sense. When I haven't eaten for 40 minutes, I'm hungry. Like, 40 days, uh, all right, I'm already tracking with this. So he was hungry. Luke 4, 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. So Jesus has known physical deprivation. Jesus has known and experienced what it's like for something essential to the physical body to have been withheld and to know that sensation. Jesus was tempted with the desires of the flesh. And then you move on to desires of the eyes. And this is where it starts to get a little bit, huh? Desires of the eyes. What does that mean? What is it? Well, let's unpack it together. And we have to understand, when the Bible talks about eyes, you frequently see things like turn your eyes upon, lift your eyes to, set your eyes on, look your eyes after, right? And what this is implying to is where your heart is set. And so the idea, the phrase desire of the eyes it's referencing a strategic avenue to incite wrong desires, okay? It's something that gives a pleasing approach or it gives a pleasing appearance, but ultimately leads away from God. So when you're talking about desire of the eyes, it's something that looks at first glance, you're like, yeah, it's a good thing. That, that's good. But ultimately, it leads away from God. It's the same idea and the same language that's used and it's the same tactic that the devil used in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. This is Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Did you catch what the problem was with that? She saw that the tree was to be desired for wisdom. That's the issue with desire of the eyes. Because at first glance, wisdom, that's a good thing. I mean, Sam, you just spent last Sunday, spent a good amount of time talking about how Christians are to be wise. Aren't we to pursue wisdom? Yeah. But we're to pursue wisdom in God. The desire of the eyes gave a pleasing appearance. Wisdom is a good thing. You should go after wisdom. But the source was the problem. The pursuit of it was the problem. It's the same way that Jesus was tempted here by Satan. Yeah. Luke 4, 5 through 7. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Well, the Bible talks about that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The Bible talks about that glory and honor and worship is due to Jesus. So the devil's saying, look, I'm, I'm offering that. This is what you're due. This is the honor and the glory and the worship you're due. Here it is. It's available to you. And Jesus knew that wasn't the issue. The issue was pursuing it apart from the will of God. It's the desire of the eyes. This looks good, but it's not going to lead you towards God. And then third, that third phrase from 1 John 2, 
pride of life. And what this refers to, and I want to be clear on one thing, when we talk about pride of life refers to the idea of arrogance over your circumstances. The idea of arrogance over the outcomes or the specific details of your life. The arrogance, and it, it gets, I mean, it gets nasty. Arrogance to presume we know what God is going to do. And I don't mean, let me be very clear, I know God is faithful. I know God is going to come again. I know God is triumphant. Right? Like, there are things we can know because they are promised to us in Scripture. This pride of life is the idea of we can presume to know, or worse, we can manipulate God to do what we want in any given situation. Pride of life is referring to the arrogance to put God in a box and to try and hem him in and frame him in by trying to manipulate Scripture. Pride of life is referring to the arrogance to conform Scripture to our lives instead of allowing our lives to be conformed by Scripture. Pride of life is picking and choosing verses out of context so that we can try and manipulate God and manipulate the circumstances to do what we want. That's what it's talking about with pride of life. Luke 4, 9 through 11. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan quotes Scripture. That's the pride of life, to try and force God's Word to fit what we want instead of submitting to what God's Word actually says. And it's in Jesus' response that we see this, right? James actually, a couple weeks ago, I think it was maybe last week, two weeks ago, shared a quote from A.W. Tozer on the church Facebook page that I immediately grabbed to use for this sermon. A.W. Tozer once said, The devil is a better theologian than any of us and is a devil still. See, it's not about memorizing Scripture. I could memorize the entire Bible. I mean, I could memorize the entire Bible in English, Greek, and Hebrew. But if I don't know how to apply it, if I don't know what it actually means, if I've just memorized it for memorization's sake, that's pointless. Jesus demonstrates this, that it's not about just knowing the Word, it's about knowing it rightly. It's about applying it correctly and appropriately. Because that's what we see in this interaction. And when you talk about there are things we can know, one of the things we know is that Jesus is victorious, then, now, forever. And that in Him we have that victory. And when you talk about cool biblical connections that just made me laugh with joy, we're getting to another one. Right? So last week, we looked at the idea, we, we wrapped up with that this life is a spiritual battle, that we're not fighting forces of flesh, but forces of spiritual evil and darkness, that our weapons are not weapons of the flesh, but spiritual weapons, right? We looked at this reality that we are in the middle of a battle. And so then this week, I'm prepping for this sermon, and I'm studying, and we get to temptation, and you know, there's that verse that I'm guessing most of us have heard before when you're talking about this, James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Right? You know that's a battle verse? When we talk about submit, that word submit, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, what it means is to line up under your commander. It was used to reference soldiers in the military. Line up under your commanding officer. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And then that verse, or that word resist, resist the devil, same idea. It was used to refer to take your stand against. 
in the idea of a physical engagement with the enemy. And so this verse is a battle verse. I didn't intend to talk about a battlefield today, but that's where Scripture leads. And it ties all together, and I love it. I love studying the Bible. It is, it is my favorite thing to do, bar none, because you discover things like this, right? And so Jesus modeled this. He submits himself to God. He stands firm against the devil, and the devil flees. That's how that passage in Luke and Matthew ends. When he had tried all of this, he withdrew. Jesus rebuffed the devil's attack with Scripture because he knew what God said and he knew how to use it correctly. It's not about memorizing it. It's about knowing it and understanding it. And make no mistake, what does this mean? Where am I going with this? What does this mean for us? Why do you keep talking about a battlefield, Sam? Because I think sometimes in my own life, and if, if anyone here is like me, and I suspect at least some of you are, sometimes I get more focused on worrying about the possibility of an attack instead of preparing for an attack. And I let the fear of what might happen and the dread of what might happen and the anxiety of what might happen build up to where that fear and that dread has crippled me just as much as an actual attack would. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 64.1, preserve my life from dread of the enemy. David was a warrior. David was a fighter. David spent a large chunk of his life on the battlefield. And what does he say to God? God, preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Because David understood that that dread can be just as destructive as the actual attack. Matthew 6, 34, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. Don't. I think our time is far more effective preparing for the attack than wondering if it's going to come. We're on a battlefield. You're in the middle of a war. Of course an attack is going to come. No soldier puts on armor and grabs their sword and walks out to the battlefield expecting to be there by themselves. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. 1 Peter 5.8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. So don't, don't waste time asking yourself, do I have an enemy out to get me? Yeah. I mean, if that occupies your mind, is there someone out to get me? Yeah, let me answer that for you. The devil. All right, now we don't have to worry about that. Now we can prepare for the attack that is actually going to come, which seems to me to be a much better use of our time. Because if I know an attack is going to come, and Jesus has laid out how to prepare for that attack, then I can do the same. Because if you wait, think, put yourselves in the image of, let's go back to Jesus' time, right? when it was hand-to-hand -hand combat with a sword on a, a dusty battlefield. Do you think the soldier waited? Josh, I'm going to use you. You're a soldier, all right? Would you wait to the middle of the battle to ask your commanding officer, hey, how do I use the sword? Like, which end's the, which end's the handle? Which end's the pointy part? No! Josh is going to die if he waits till the middle of the battle to be like, hey, anybody know how to use this? So let's learn how to use it ahead of time so that when the attack comes, because I can promise you the attack is going to come, we're ready for the attack. That's what Jesus modeled for us. Jesus knew Scripture. I want us to be prepared to do the same. So as we transition into, okay, well then what does this mean for us? We ask the same question. How was Jesus tempted? If the Bible says Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are, and we can understand how Jesus was tempted, 
then logically we'll be able to figure out how we're going to be tempted. And the attack you can prepare for, personally, seems less scary than the attack you have no idea about. So how are we tempted? Well, we'll use the same three things in John, or in 1 John, I'm sorry. The desires of the flesh. Let's make no mistake, God meant for this life to be enjoyable. I mean, really, look through the Bible. It talks about every good thing is a gift from your Father above. It talks about He is a God of laughter. He is a God of rejoicing. Relationships, friendships, marriage, food. Look at the verses that talk about the food that was given to be enjoyed, the drink that was given to be enjoyed. God meant for there to be physical pleasure in this life. But He meant for it to exist within His will as He designed it. The desires of the flesh are that distortion of what God created to be good. Listen to this. This is Psalm 78, 18, talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. They tested God in their hearts by demanding the food they craved. You see the Israelite people struggling with the temptation of the desires of the flesh. And what's revealed in that desire of the flesh? They tested God in their hearts by demanding the food they craved. Their craving was not for the Lord. Their craving was for a physical desire, and they demanded it. They felt they were owed it. They thought it was an obligation to them. Lord, we demand this of you because we physically desire it. Their hearts, what does it say? They tested God in their hearts. It wasn't, Lord, we trust you to provide no matter the deprivation we are currently going through. It was, all right, God, come on, show up. We want food. We want it now. Where are you? They tested God in their hearts. They gave in to the temptation of the desires of the flesh. We do the same thing today. We take what God intended to be good and we distort it. And on that idea of distortion, and this will be the, I think this is the final connection that really just made me like, oh, this is awesome. But I want to go back to 1 John 2 for one last time. This is 1 John 2, 18, but I'm going to read, because keep in mind these verses, right? You have to understand the context. They're all together. So I'm going to read 1 John 2, 15 through 18 now. We're going to take it one verse further. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... Listen to this phrase, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. I think sometimes there's a temptation as we think about battle, as we think about the enemy, as we think about the antichrist, right? There's a temptation to focus on the one big figure. And there's just going to be one kind of neon glowing antichrist who it is just so painfully obvious, this person is the anti of Jesus, There is one big figure that is the glowing opposite of everything that Jesus is. And there's a temptation to be lulled into that. But what does this verse say? No, the hour has come. Many antichrists have come. Because that word anti in front of Christ, it doesn't mean the polar opposite. It doesn't mean stark contrast to. What that word actually means is a mimicry of, an imitation of, right? The visual that I get that kind of helps me understand this is, has ever been to a carnival funhouse? Right, you guys seen the funhouse mirrors? 
where it warps the image just a little bit. So it still looks like me, but maybe my head's a little squished. Or it still looks like me, but you know my body kind of waves with an S. That's what that word Antichrist is talking about. It's not a stark opposite, black and white, everything different than Jesus. It's, no, many mimicries of Jesus have come. Many imitations of Christ have come. Distortions, it goes back to desires of the eyes. Things that give the appearance of good, but are just enough off to lead you away from God. And when you think of desires of the flesh, you see that, right? Food is good. I enjoy, I mean, think about it. God created the chemical process that creates sugar. That's a good thing. I am grateful for that chemical process. God clearly is a chef. He meant for things to be good and to be enjoyed. God created the relationship between a husband and a wife, which is a good thing. <laughs> Figured I'd get an amen on that, right? Like, God created these things to be good and to be enjoyed. But like that funhouse mirror, the desires of the flesh, the antichrists that have come, take that original image and they distort it just enough that it's not what it was meant to be. And so the food that is good becomes abused and becomes an idol and becomes craved above God. And we test God in our hearts and we say, satisfy this physical craving now. We demand it. The relationship between a husband and a wife becomes abused and searched for out of the context with which God created it. And we crave it and we demand it. That's what this is talking about with our temptations. We have been tempted with desires of the flesh. Second, desires of the eyes. What does this look like for us today? If we talked about a desire of the eye is something that gives a pleasing appearance, but leads us away from what God wanted. And this, you'll notice, they start to get more subtle. They start to get trickier. Because these can be things that seem good, right? I'm called to be wise, so I'm going to desire the tree that gives me wisdom. No, wisdom comes from God. You have to desire God. Right? I'm called to work hard. I'm called to work as unto God's glory. I should be, I've said this before, I think every boss should want to hire more Christians. Right? But if we set our eyes on our job for meaning and for purpose... Something that's good has now started to divert from what it was meant to be. And it becomes that idol. And make no mistake, and I want to, it may seem like I'm harping on this, but I really think our country, when people say, oh, well, idolatry is really not as bad as it used to be. Yeah, it's worse. Way too many people work at the, or worship at the corporate idol. The saddest example I've ever had of this, I called, I don't know if you remember, I called you after work this day. I used to work at a Fortune 500 company. And the vice president of our department, so this was, this was somebody with clout. This was somebody with power and with money. And they sat me down as the youngest member of the team to give me career advice, right? And this wasn't a one-time conversation. There were numerous conversations where the whole thrust was, don't be afraid to sacrifice for your career, especially when you're young. One of the specific statements was, in the first 20 years, don't be afraid to push everything else aside to establish your career. That's how I rose to this position. Because when you get to my age, then you're in a position of power and of money and you've got the extra vacation. So in the first 20 years, 
don't be afraid to, and they gave me examples. They gave me examples of the things that I shouldn't hesitate to sacrifice for my job. This was the same vice president who on several occasions I heard lament out loud why their adult children who lived within 20 minutes of them had no interest in coming over for holidays or cookouts or birthday parties. They could not understand why their family relationships had so eroded and deteriorated. And I really wanted to say, maybe because it's, you spent the first 20 years sacrificing them for your job. Well, I used to spend time with God in the morning, but you know my boss really likes it if you come in early. And so that got pushed aside. Well, I used to spend time with God on my lunch break because at home I'm so busy. I get that. I get that you're busy at home. I used to spend time with God on my lunch break, but man, my boss really likes it if I work through my lunch break. And then I stay late because there, there will always be a later family dinner. There will always be another kid's game I can get to. There will always be family time once I'm in a position where I can spend more time out of the office. We take something that's good, working hard for the glory of the Lord, and we allow it to become the desire of our eyes. Where we're not working to glorify God in everything we do, we're working to get that next promotion, to get that next pay raise. What does the Bible say? The Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. The desire of our eyes has become the money, right? There's a song by Lecrae, and I love how he phrases it. Lecrae says, there's nothing wrong with having it. Matter of fact, go and get it. But if you find identity in it, then quit it, right? We allow these things that have the appearance of good to become the desire of our eyes. And make no mistake, we can do this with things that are legitimately intended to be good. My relationship with my wife is intended to be good. But if it becomes the purpose of my life, if it becomes the desire of my eyes instead of God, it's become an idol. If you look through my journals, if you look through my prayer logs, you'll see, and I have to pray this regularly because I forget it so easily. I have to regularly be convicted to pray, God, Forgive me for desiring my wife more than I desire you. Teach me to love you more than I ever love my wife. Our relationships with one another are meant to be good, but they can very easily and far too readily become the desire of our eyes, where we allow something that seems good to get distorted in that funhouse mirror and become an idol that takes us further and further away from the relationship that God has intended with us. This is a temptation that we face constantly. And third, pride of life. Arrogance over our circumstances. Arrogance to presume we know what's going to happen in any given moment. Arrogance to fit God into a box of our own making. Arrogance to think that we can force Scripture to support what we want it to support. Arrogance to think that God is a genie who appears when we want and does what we want. This is pride of life. This is a massive idol today. This is a temptation that I would guess all of us, I know I've wrestled with this. I know I've wrestled with arrogance over my life. And make no mistake, I want to make a distinction here. Because when we think of arrogance, we tend to go towards I'm the best, right? If you're talking about arrogance, if you're talking about ego, oh, that automatically means you think too highly of yourself. 
It's egotistical to think everybody loves me. It's egotistical to think I'm the man. Everything's going right for me because I am awesome. Everybody is for me. That's egotistical. It is just as egotistical to think everyone is against me. There is not a single person, right? Like, think about it, because the same thing you're saying is, it's about me. It is just as egotistical to put yourself, I don't know, it's egotistical to say I'm number one. It's egotistical to say I'm the opposite of whatever number one is, right? You, you have to think highly of yourself to think that everyone is bent on being against you. My dad, I, I, I stole him this line from my dad, and my dad honestly probably stole it from a pastor he heard. But my dad would say in sermons that were especially tough on tough topics, he would say, if you're sitting in the audience thinking that Ron came up with this whole message just to try and drill a point into me, he said, what kind of ego do you have to have? I mean, what kind of ego do you have to have to think that someone puts together a Sunday school class designed to just, I'm really just trying to single out Joe, but I'm going to disguise it by pretending like I'm talking to everybody. That requires ego. So don't make the mistake of thinking ego can only be a, I'm the best, right? And this isn't humility. I'm not talking about, right, Paul says, Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I'm not talking about a genuine humility. I'm talking about the ego to think that everyone else is focused on you, whether for the good or the bad. So arrogance in life is a temptation for many of us to make it about us. To think that we can force God to fit what we want him to do. Because Sam, doesn't the Bible say, the Bible says you've quoted this. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The Bible says, ask and you will receive. The Bible says, I mean the Bible says if any of you are sick, let him come to the elders and let them anoint him with oil and pray for healing. The Bible says all these things. Sam, I feel like I'm delighting myself in God, but he hasn't given me this thing that I'm desiring in my heart. Well, is what you're desiring to know him better and to love him more? Sam, I've asked, but I haven't received. Are you asking with right motives? Or are you asking because you're trying to say, okay, God, I've checked the boxes. Time to pay up. Time to show up. If you're God, give me what I've asked for. Our elders have gotten together and prayed for people for healing. And we have all believed that God could heal them perfectly in that moment. But every time we've done this, we have prayed, Lord, not our will, but yours be done. Because that is the underlying problem with pride of life. Because when we give in to the temptation of the pride of life, when we give in to the temptation of this arrogance, the underlying issue is, well, what happens if it doesn't go the way you want? What happens if you don't get what you want? Does that make God any less God? If the Bible says, ask and it will be given to you, and I ask and it's not given to me, does that mean God is less sovereign? That is the problem of this temptation, is it erodes our relationship and our understanding of the Almighty. And it erodes and it eats away. It's not, these aren't, when we're talking about these temptations, right, they're not big, obvious if the devil appeared in front of you with a sign that said, hey, this is going to ruin your life, you want in? None of us are going to say yes. Temptations aren't presented like that. Temptations are presented as just a half-step deviation. 
and then another half step. And so the problem with arrogance and pride of life is it begins to eat away at our relationship with God because we're looking at Scripture, we're trying to conform it to what we want it to say, and when God doesn't play that game, well, then is God really God? That's where the whisper starts to go. And so you see this with people who say, well, yeah, I, you know, my relationship with God is good when things are going well, but I lost my job and I've got to wonder, does God care about me? That's a pride of life issue. So I think we struggle with all of these, with desires of the flesh, with desires of the eyes. And these will destroy us. But Jesus demonstrated how we deal with these. And so that's, you know, we've been doing these challenges, not every week, but most weeks we do, you know, hey, here's what I want you to think about this week and stuff. This is the hardest one so far. And, and quite honestly, I'm going to say this plainly, if you're not willing to look in the mirror, if you're not willing to fall on your knees before God and say, God, teach me, show me my failings, whatever that may mean, if you're not willing to be honest before God, you're not going to do this challenge. You just, you won't. Because this requires, and like I said, when I've said that God is always teaching me more than what I could possibly have time to share, I, I preach out of what God is teaching me. I've had some painful prayer times this week. But here's what I'm going to challenge you guys all to do, right? I've said that you know an attack is coming. We're on a battlefield. Your enemy's prowling around. Stop wasting time wondering if there's an enemy out there and if he's going to attack. Yes, you're going to be attacked. You're going to be tempted with desires of the flesh. You're going to be tempted with desires of the eyes. You're going to be tempted to look at something that seems good, and you're going to be tempted to give that a place of prominence in your heart that only belongs to God. Right? To go Old Testament, when God said in the Ten Commandments, have no other gods before me. What we have distorted that and allowed it to become is a ranking of the gods in our life. Well, yeah, God's number one, and then my wife is God number two, and my friends are God number three. No, that's not what that means. It's not, don't rank any other gods before me. It's, you have no other gods in my presence. If you say I'm your God, I'm your only God. There is nothing else that sits on that throne. Right? That's the pride. That's the desire of the eyes. We struggle with these things. We're all tempted by these things. So here's what I'm challenging you to do. Because just like Jesus did, Jesus was ready with Scripture to rebuff the attack that came against him. I want you all to do the same. I want us all to do the same. So what I'm challenging you this week, because like I said, if you wait till the heat of the battle to try and figure out what you're going to do, you're done. So I want us to take a good, long, hard look and say, okay, God, what are my weaknesses? Where am I most susceptible? That's the other thing. If you look at Mark's account and Luke's account, the language they use imply that the devil was with Jesus the entirety of these 40 days, tempting him the entire time. But Matthew and Luke don't... Rec don't why can't I think of the word? Starts with an R. Write something down. Record. Hey, there we go. Matthew and Luke don't record the attacks until the very end. When Jesus is at the most vulnerable, right? He had finished these 40 days and he was hungry. So first, in this challenge, here's what I, When are you weakest? When are you at your most susceptible to attack? Is it when you feel neglected? Is it when you're alone? 
Is it when something doesn't go well for you at work? Is it when a family member doesn't return a phone? Whenever it is, first I want you to identify for yourself. And I mean this seriously, identify. When am I weakest and most vulnerable to attack? Then second, how is that attack going to come? Am I going to be attacked with desires of the flesh? Is that my biggest area of vulnerability? Is it going to be desires of the eyes? Am I tempted to put my relationships in a place of prominence that belongs to Christ and Christ alone? Am I tempted to put my job in a place of prominence, my work in a place of prominence, my marriage, my kids, whatever it is, is it a desire of the eye that is your biggest vulnerability? Is it an arrogance of life? Is it a pride of life? Is it everyone is for me? I'm awesome. I'm the greatest person on the face of this planet. Is it arrogance of everyone is against me? There's not a single person who cares about me. I'm alone. I always have been. I always will be. The church doesn't like me. Is it arrogance? Is it arrogance to say, I can make scripture say what I want it to say, and if it doesn't happen the way I think it should happen, God, I don't know if you're real. Is it pride of life that is going to be your biggest vulnerability? So first, identify when you're weakest. Second, identify how are you going to be attacked. And then third, here's the, here's the best part of all of this. Those first two questions are painful. I, I'm sorry, there's no way around it. Those are hard, painful questions in prayer times. But the third part is where the joy just comes through. Identify what God says in each of those situations so that we can apply Scripture rightly. So if your biggest area of temptation is going to be physical desire, then I want you to find what Scripture says about physical desire. So that when Satan comes at you and tries to attack you with the desires of the flesh, you're able to answer and say, No, man should not live by bread alone. I know what God's Word says, Satan. This attack's not going to happen. Maybe it's the pride of the eyes, right? So identify what Scripture says so that when it comes at you and it's, hey, you know, just, you need Bible time in tomorrow. Come on. You haven't had any you time for a while. You need some time for yourself. Just, you know, give God time later. No, I, I know what the Bible says. I know that God deserves my first fruits. This is tech. It's not going to work. Maybe it's the arrogance, the pride of life. Know what God says about you. So that when you start to think, man, I'm, I'm pretty much the greatest, or at least close to it. No, I know what the Bible says about who I am. I know what God says about the humility that is essential for my life. This attack's not going to work. Or when you start to think arrogantly that uh, I'm the worst, I'm alone, nobody loves me, you know what the Bible says. So that's my challenge. One, when are you weakest? Two, how are you weakest? Three, Forget the lies. What does God actually say about those moments? What does God actually say about those temptations? I want us to be people like Christ who are armed with the sword of the Spirit so that when the attack comes, we're ready. And we can say, no. Uh, no, I, I completely reject this lie that you were trying to convince me of. I know I'm not the greatest. I know this isn't about me. I know that purpose and meaning isn't found in cramming an extra three hours in at the office. I know what God says. So that when the attacks come, we are ready to stand our ground, to go back to that verse 
Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Line up under your commander. That's what that third piece is. Identify what God says. Line up under your commander so that you can stand your ground against the attacks. That's my challenge for us this week. I want us to be people who, just like Christ, when temptation comes, are ready to defend against it. And we're not going to do it perfectly. Don't think you are. But to go back to my very first point, or I guess my second point, why was he tempted? So that he could identify with us. Stop trying to fight the battle on your own. Whatever it is that tempts you, whatever it is that weighs on you, oh my goodness, let's go back to Josh. You're facing the Philistine army. Are you going to tell the rest of your guys, no, it's cool, I'm going to go by myself? Or are you going to be like, yeah, come on, all of us together? He's not going to go out on the battlefield by himself. So first and foremost, go to Christ with these temptations. Remember that we have a Savior who sympathizes with us in every way. So that what did it say? For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So in this process of identifying your weaknesses and identifying what God says, never forget that the central piece must be with Christ. We've got to stop trying to fight on our own. That's what sticks out to me in the story of Jesus being tempted. I think it's incredible to see, to really see that, yeah, Jesus has gone through what we are going through. What a joy that is to know that our Savior went through that so that he could relate to us and help us in those same ways. And practically, I want to see us start to apply this stuff. James 1.22, my favorite verse, Be not hearers of the word only, but doers. Simpler translation, don't just listen to the word, do what it says. So let's do what it says. Learn what the Bible says about our weaknesses so that when the attack comes, we're ready for them. That's my prayer for us this week. That's my challenge for you all this week. Please join me in prayer. God, we thank you. We thank you that you are victorious. We've spent so much time talking about a battlefield, and it's, it's such a odd scenario I confess sometimes because it's a battle we're engaged in where the outcome is promised so remind us of that when the fight around us and the fight in front of us seems to be too much and I confess that there have been times in these past two months that the fight has seemed too much remind us that we're victorious remind us that you have defeated the grave you have conquered evil So even though we're in the middle of the battle, God, remind us of what's coming at the end of it. And while we're in the middle of it, remind us how to use the weapons we've been given. Teach us to know how to use the sword of the Spirit. Prepare us to be ready for the fights. As David said, preserve our hearts from dread of the enemy. God, I don't want this to be a people who are afraid of the enemy. We ask that this would be a church of soldiers lined up under your command, ready to stand firm and to resist the devil. And we thank you for what you promise happens when we do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
I don't 